0: Good evening. Welcome to Tuesday evening service. Tuesday evening service, I'm on church mode here. Tuesday evening chapel. I was just seeing if you were paying attention, really, that's all. I need you to ask the person next to you if they did everything they wanted to last week during reading and research week. <clears throat> Well, whatever it is that you did or didn't do, I hope it is helping you being transformed into Christ likeness. All in favor say aye. aye. So I say it with me. We are being transformed. One more time. We are being transformed into Christ's likeness. Every part of us, every part of us, take it. Here we are, use us, shape us, mold us, accept us, challenge us. All for you, all for your sake. Thank you for the witness that I see in the lives of the folks in this room. We give you praise for what you've done, for what you're doing, and for their willingness to say, take me. Help us to hear now through your servant, your word, for your sake and the sake of those who don't know you yet. We say it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
1: If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter. And I'd like to read verses 38 through 48 with you and for you. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. And I know you just sat down, but I'd like you to stand up again as we read our Lord's word. Matthew 5, beginning with verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. How in the world are we supposed to understand this scripture passage? How are we supposed to do that? I think I've really made a mistake here this evening. You see, I've been thinking about this passage for several weeks now and I'm sure you all know how that is. You get a Bible passage in your mind and you just can't seem to get away from it. Well, that's what happened to me with this passage from Matthew 5. So when Chaplain Like asked me if I would preach and what my text would be, I told him I was going to preach from this text and now I'm stuck with it. I mean, I really have a problem here. But then as I struggled with this passage, wondering what in the world I was going to preach from it, I started struggling with the fact that I was struggling with the passage. What is there about this passage that I find so difficult to preach about? Now it's bad enough when you're struggling with a passage but when you start struggling with the fact that you're struggling with the passage then you're just really in a struggle (laughs) and now you know what I'm struggling with. Anyway as I've thought about this passage I think I've discovered what the problem with these verses is. The problem here is that Jesus is taking claims in this passage to the way that we live our lives. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and in particular in these verses 38 to 48, Jesus is making demands upon the way we as his followers should act and behave. Yes, I'm sorry you understood me correctly. Jesus is making some demands on our life and upon our actions. In fact, Jesus is saying in these verses that if you want to be a follower of His, if you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to live your life in a certain way. And that is the problem that faces us this evening. How in the world are we supposed to understand the scripture passage? Maybe I need to express this this problem in a different way. What do you have to do in order to be a Christian? And what does it actually mean to be a Christian? Is it something that you believe, or is it something that you do? Well, what's the answer? Oh, come on. You know the standard answer to this question. I'm sure you do. You probably even know the Bible text, that we are conditioned to jump up and quote when asked this question. What is it? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, of course. Certainly we all know the answer to this question. Paul writes, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so there we have our answer already. What do you need to do to be a Christian? You need to have faith. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the end of the story. You don't have to do anything else. Just have faith. Paul wrote it himself, being saved, being born again, being a Christian, Paul tells us, is a question of faith. It's not a question of actions or good works. Otherwise, someone might try to boast about how great they are, right? And we certainly couldn't have that. And so it's a question of faith, period. End of discussion. Let's go back to class. No, no. In that sense, the chapel is just like jail. You don't get out until your time's up. (laughs) And it's not up. (laughs) And so there you have it. Salvation, being a Christian, is a question of faith. You don't have to do anything else except believe in Jesus Christ. It's by grace that we are saved through faith. Right? Can we agree on that? Nodding heads? Good. For many years, I felt very comfortable in accepting that salvation was by faith alone, that that was all there was to it. But several years ago, when I was living in Holland, then I had a conversation with one of the teens that I was working with in the teen group. And the whole discussion made me rethink this a bit. I don't know how we got into this whole discussion, but we were talking about different world religions. We talked about, for instance, Buddhism and its entire system of self-denial. In order to gain salvation, in order to gain the state of Nirvana, the religion of Buddhism believes that a person engages in a long and slow process of working one's way up a long ladder of achievement. It is a long and grueling path of self-denial that a serious Buddhist must walk in order to achieve the salvific state of nirvana. That's one of the reasons why Buddhists believe in reincarnation. They need the extra time in order to do all the necessary works to earn that state of nirvana. And we talked about the religion of Islam. Devout Muslims also have a long and demanding battery of laws and actions that they need to adhere to in order to earn the favor of God or of Allah and be found deserving of salvation. Well, at a certain point in our discussion, this teenage girl stood up and said, Well, that's exactly the reason why I'm a Christian. He said, What? What do you mean? Well, as a Christian, she said, I don't have to do anything at all. I don't have to do anything. In all the other religions, there's all these different things you have to do and 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 actions you have to do and things you can't do. But as a Christian, I don't have to do anything at all. I just believe in Jesus and it's all taken care of and I can do whatever I want to do. Well, is she right or not? What does it mean to be a Christian? Can you see my problem now? If I tell you, no, she's not right, there are in fact certain things that you need to do to be a Christian, and there's also certain things that you really shouldn't do if you're a Christian. If I say that, then someone will end up saying, well, just slow down there a bit, Powers. You're starting to sound pretty legalistic here with all these rules and regulations, and you're, you have to do this and you can't do that. You're starting to sound an awful lot like one of those Pharisees of the Bible. You can't earn salvation, it's through faith alone. It's not through something you do. And yes, this is true. But on the other hand, if I say that this teenage girl is right, and that you don't have to do anything at all in order to be a Christian, then I have quite a problem with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter five, don't I? You see the problem I have here? What am I going to do with Jesus' words in Matthew five? Unless I'm completely mistaken. Jesus is making demands on the lives of his followers. When I read Matthew five, verses 38 to 48, I have to admit that Jesus holds up some pretty high standards, some pretty high expectations for those who would want to follow him. And those expectations have everything to do with the way a Christian lives his or her life. These expectations have a lot to do with the way that I live my daily life. How in the world should we understand these words of Jesus? What does it really mean to be a Christian? I'm convinced there are no easy answers to these questions. And I'm also convinced that if someone jumps up and tries to give you an easy answer, then that means they have either not carefully considered the question, what it really means to be a Christian, or they're not taking the words of Jesus seriously. Well, today I want to try to do something very radical. I'm not sure if I'm up to doing this, because it really is radical and fanatical. Are you ready for this? Here's what I'm going to do. I want to try to take Jesus' words seriously for a change. Isn't that radical? I want to try to take Jesus' words seriously here. Jesus tells his listeners that the life of the true believer is going to look completely different than the lives of other people. This is the way that he says this. You've always heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, if someone does something to you, if someone wrongs you, you need to pay them back in exactly the same measure. Not too much, not too little, but in in exactly the same measure. Jesus says, that is what you've always heard. That is what you've always learned. But I say to you, don't repay evil with evil. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, then turn to him the other cheek as well. If someone wants to sue you and take your coat, give him your shirt as well. If someone forced you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Then Jesus says, it is not the idea that you should only love your friends and hate your enemies. No. You need to love your enemies as well and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. Those are hard words to deal with, aren't they? I have a book in my office called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Seven of the 11 verses of our scripture receive separate attention in that book of The Hard Sayings of Jesus. How in the world are we supposed to understand these words of Jesus? We're going to look into that in just a second. But first I want to make two observations that we need to, make to, rec- that we need to recognize about these words of Jesus. First, I think it's important for us to realize that these words were difficult for the people in Jesus' time as well. Sometimes we read certain things in the Bible and we think, well, yeah, that was easy for them back then, but we live in a completely different time today. For us, it's simply different. No, we need to realize that these were difficult words for the people back then too. They also struggled with these words of Jesus. There's also something else that I think that we need to realize as we try to come to terms with these words of Jesus here. I am completely convinced that Jesus knew that these were difficult words. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that Jesus wanted these words to be difficult. It was Jesus' intention for these words to be difficult for his hearers. Do you know why? I think he made these words purposefully difficult so that people who wanted to follow him would really have to think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. They really had to think about it. You know, we really are creatures of habit. There's so many things that we just do by habit. This is actually one of the great strengths of humanity, I'm convinced. The fact that we can do so many things by habit instead of by conscious thought enables us to save time and energy and concentration. Let me give you an example. Most of us don't think, have to think about how we have to drive to get home. Most of us don't have to think about it. When we leave here, we just step into our cars, we drive home without giving a second thought. It's almost as if the car knows how to drive itself home. And so on the way home, we can think and contemplate and worry and do a million and one things. And before you know it, oh, hey, hey, I'm home. I made it home. It has simply become a habit for us to drive home, and we can usually do it without even thinking about it. It's a wonderful advantage to be able to do things by habit without even thinking about them. But the fact that we are creatures of habit is also one of the great weaknesses of humanity. So many times we can go through life without realizing what we're really up to, without really thinking about, wow, so that's what I'm doing. And that can sometimes have some very strange and odd results. I've got to tell you about a professor I had when I was at seminary, Nazarene Theological Seminary. I know that others here have stories, chaplain-like has certain stories. Anyone who's been to seminary would know Dr. Greider. Dr. Greider was an incredible theologian. You could ask him a question and he could give you the author's name, the title of the book, and even a page number where you could find the answer to your question in three or four different books. It was amazing. I've never met someone who had such an incredible theological memory like Dr. Grider. But strangely enough, while Dr. Grider could remember theological data like no one I've ever met in my life, he was also the most forgetful person that I've ever met. After living in Kansas City for over 30 years, he would still get lost home driving home from seminary. There was one story, and those who know Dr. Greider know all kinds of Dr. Greider's stories. He would tell them about himself. There's one story that he told that I will never forget. During one of his years of teaching, then, he had to drive to Chicago from Kansas City every month for a special conference he was involved in. Well, Chicago is about 500 miles or so from Kansas City, and so Dr. Greider flew every month to Chicago and then flew back. Well, one time when he got back from Chicago, he called his wife from the Kansas City airport and told her that she could come and pick him up. She asked him, well, where are you calling from? He said, well, I'm calling from the airport here in Kansas City. Can you come pick me up? And his wife said, well, honey, don't you remember you decided to drive to Chicago this time? So where's the car? Well, the car was still back in Chicago. Not so good. You see, the fact that we are creatures of habit can also be one of the great weaknesses Of humanity but anyway you look at it we are creatures of habit in the time of Jesus there were many people who wanted to be around Jesus I mean it was great fun hanging out with Jesus the things he would say the miracles he would perform the discussions he would find himself in it was just fun to be around Jesus but in this passage Jesus let the people know what it really meant to follow him to actually be his disciple and he told them that it means that your life will actually look different than the lives of other people. Your life must be different. You have to think about the way that you are living your life. You can't believe in Jesus and follow him and simply continue down the same path as the rest of the mob. Jesus says, no, your life will look different. You know, I think that as Christians, we've sometimes made a terrible mistake here. I'm afraid that we have made the Christian life into something that's cheap. We've focused so much attention upon the words of Paul, where he wrote that being a Christian is a question of faith alone, that we overlook other passages of Paul, when he says, my friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And when Paul writes to the Colossians, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus Lord, now walk in Him, now live in Him. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 places demands upon our life. We can't go around thinking that we can just believe in Jesus and then go on living our lives like we always have done it before. If you think that you can do that, then you're not taking the words of Jesus seriously. And you're making the Christian life into something cheap and meaningless. Jesus wants to exercise control over the way you live your life. We have to take the words of Matthew seriously, the words of Jesus in Matthew seriously. And that means that our lives have to change. That means that our daily lives have to be different than the lives of our non-Christian friends and neighbors. I've done that before, and all I've gotten was being smacked in the face and beat up. He said, go the extra mile. Every time I go the extra mile, I lose things. If I keep going, I won't have anything left. What do you want from us? Do you know what I want? Do you know what I want? Our theme for this year is the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. We are being transformed into Christ-likeness. I'd actually like to be able to recognize Christ likeness among believers today. I'm not talking about some legalistic types of works righteousness. I'm talking about a pressing on among believers in our churches in our schools to actually be transformed in the image of Christ and not being happy with anything else. Is that so much to ask? I'm afraid this might be the church's greatest fallacy today as I look around me, sometimes even in my own life, I see a lack of earnest striving towards Christ-likeness. So what do I want? Thank you, Travis. I want us to take our Christian life seriously. I want us not only to confess Jesus with our mouths, but why is it we don't confess Jesus Christ with our actions, with our very lives, And the more I think about these words of Jesus in this passage, the more I'm convinced this is exactly what Jesus is trying to say. You know, I really do want to take these words of Jesus seriously. But how am I supposed to do that? How are we supposed to do that? The more I think about Jesus' words, the more I come to the conclusion that it's virtually impossible to follow these instructions of Jesus literally. I don't think that was his intention. I can certainly turn my face and allow someone to strike me on the other cheek but how am I supposed to follow the rest? I'm the father of four children. If I do what Jesus says in these verses, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. If I do that, I won't have a cent left to take care of my own family. No, I'm serious about that. I can't do that and I really don't think that Jesus would want me to do that. Even John Wesley says in his notes on the New Testament, some of these words are certainly not intended to be understood literally. So what is it then that Jesus wants of us? I think Jesus wants us to actually think about our life. To actually think about it. The instructions that Jesus gives here, think about it. The instructions that Jesus gives here are not the kind of instructions that you can just mindlessly follow. You can just, okay, fine, I'll just do that now. You can't do that. The kind of life that Jesus prescribes for his followers is not something that just automatically happens or naturally takes place. You have to think about it. You have to deliberately do something. The life that Jesus sets before us is something we have to pursue. It doesn't just happen. You have to pursue it. It's something we have to press on towards. Friends, Jesus wants and he expects us to actually think about our life. He wants us to have the courage to live the type of life that runs upstream against the flow of the rest of the world. I think a person has to have guts to be a Christian. Can I say it that way? It takes courage. It takes commitment. And that's what Jesus is saying to us here. If you want to follow me, you've got to pay the price. You've got to pay the price. If you want to be a Christian then be a Christian don't just say it be it sure it's easy to follow the way of the world it sucks us into its mind-numbing and dead brain-dead stream but it gets us nowhere you have to have guts to be a Christian I know it doesn't sound very nice but I have to think of the motto that I'm sure that we're all familiar with no guts no glory maybe that should be our motto for this year no guts no glory I'm afraid this might be true of the genuine life of faith. No guts, no glory. If you don't have the guts to really follow Jesus, if you don't have the courage to stand up and move against the mindless flow of the world, there will be no spiritual victory for you. And your life will be meaningless. Think about it. Think about it. So today I want to ask you, who are you? Who are you? And what is really determining your life if you want to follow Jesus then he's going to have to have control of your life and I'm convinced that that means that your life will be different it'll be different the life that each one of us follows reflects the one that we are following it's time for us to stop just going through the motions and to think about the life we are living I wonder if this isn't what the brother of Jesus had in mind when he wrote the words, what good is it if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? He said such a life is dead, is meaningless. I think that we all know that the foundation of Christian life is based upon faith and faith alone. But Jesus wants more from us than just our faith. He wants our life. He wants our obedience. And nothing else will satisfy him. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, at a certain point then, the game of playing a Christian has to be over. And we have to either sell out or walk out. And Father, pray that for each one of our lives that you would have us sell out completely for Christ. That it wouldn't just, wouldn't just be a proclamation of our mouth, but it would actually be a proclamation of our life. Of everything we do, of every consideration. It doesn't turn into a list of rules, of do's and don'ts, but it becomes a situation where we follow and obey you in every situation. And that means we have to think about it. It means we have to commit ourselves to it. It means we don't settle for anything less. Father, I thank you for making this possible through Jesus Christ and through his Holy Spirit who works in us and and urges us to give all for Jesus holding nothing back. Father, that's the victory we want to have in our lives. The victory of full surrender to you and what you'd have us to do and to be. And so Father, we go from this place then I pray that you would give us a sense of surrender, a sense of giving up our own plans and our own ways of working things through, but to fully surrender to what you would have us to do, to the people you would have us to be, and that we would settle for nothing less. Thank you, Jesus, for your victory, and thank you for our participation in that victory by following after you as truly your followers. So we go with that victory in our hearts, and our lives give you praise and glory through Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord bless you.